0: According to the Commonwealth Fund, in 2016, spending in the U.S. on behavioral health care was almost $160 billion, with 58% of all behavioral health spending being paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. According to SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Medicaid is the largest payer in the United States for behavioral health services. Medicaid accounted for 26% of all behavioral health spending in 2009. Behavioral health is a term for mental health and substance abuse disorder conditions to differentiate from physical health. As a clinician, I seldom met a person with chronic physical health issues who didn't also have behavioral health issues. I don't know how meaningful statistics are, except to say that a lot of people have behavioral health diagnoses in their records. It costs them, their families and communities, a fortune, and government health insurance pays a significant portion of those direct costs. Welcome to Health Hats the Podcast. I'm Danny Van Lewen, a two-legged cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. You will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities and the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading? hearing, or watching? Go to my webpage, health-hats.com slash support, to choose a method of support that suits you. Thank you. Mike, thank you so much for joining me.
1: You bet, Danny. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you. This is my friend, Dr. Mike Herndon, and we've We've done quite a bit together over the years it seems like um through Picori and we were on a advisory panel together and then you were on the board and then I came on the board and you were my buddy and helped me navigate and reduce the shock of the experience <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate it, it. And so, let's just jump right in. So, Mike, when did you first realize that health was fragile?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it's that's pretty clear, easy answer for me. Uh, so, I grew up in rural Oklahoma, and. Uh, between, the summer between my sixth grade and seventh grade year, I was 12 years old, and my mom had a pituitary tumor, which is a, a small hormonal gland in the brain, and,
2: and
1: it had gotten so large that it actually was causing terrific headaches, and she was having double vision, blurred vision, and ended up having to have a craniotomy, you know, they, to remove the tumor, and that set off a lot of health problems in the family, and the financial issues that followed that, and and just the stress on the family, but also the stress in her life, and the resulting kind of emotional and mental toll that it took on her and on the family. Growing up in a lower socioeconomic environment, that that really was fairly devastating to the family to encounter a health crisis like that. So, yeah, at a very young age, I would say, I, I know there are people who have, you know, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and things uh, that are much worse than that. But that's an easy one for me, Danny. Did, you know, when I was 12 years old, having a mom with a life-threatening illness and a craniotomy and major surgery with all the sequelae that came after that, mm-hmm. I, I, I I was very aware that health was fragile.
0: Thank you. So you're a family practice doc, and you, I understand that you spent 20 years in a, a practice, and that you were the medical director or a, a clinical doctor in a college health clinic. Right. How did young adult mental illness present to you in those venues
1: yeah in a variety of ways and just to set the kind of frame of reference for that practice Mm -hmm. i returned to my alma mater the town which i my alma mater was into practice medicine and the uh, university was looking for a campus doctor, and so it was a great way for me to build a practice. So I actually went to the campus on a daily basis.
2: Okay. It
1: was part of my practice, so I saw mm-hmm. students every day. So It was typically an hour to the health clinic, and then I went to my practice in the community. Okay, <laughs> Everything dating from people suffering with, I can recall a patient with Asperger's who's had autism and all the way to people who just had simple test anxiety Mm. and situational depression. And then the spectrum in between, you know, people who had depression, chronic depression, students undiagnosed until they left home, Mm. Uh, Some of that being situational from severe family dysfunction, some of it being truly genetic and with true chemical imbalance creating depression. And then just the vast spectrum of trying to navigate being out of the home, out of your sphere of Friends and influence into a new environment trying to make your way and develop your own identity. And so just the stresses of that and the acting out. So mm-hmm. I would include in that some
0: substance abuse issues. Um, quite a range.
1: Quite an array, yes.
0: And yes. so did you mostly feel like you did you mostly feel prepared or adequate or that you could be helpful or were were you like always looking for what services did they need and that you couldn't provide and look for that like what how what was your comfort with, yeah, with dealing with that.
1: Another great question. So, I think physicians all have their areas of interest, and so they develop expertise because of that interest. Mm-hmm. And certainly, my one of my areas of interest was depression, anxiety, and just mental health, primarily mm-hmm. because of my the childhood experience but also my family experience. Mm-hmm. My family personal family has a history of depression and so I understood I think and I, I sought to understand it <laughs> paid a lot of attention in medical school, my behavioral health rotations I paid particular attention but also read and studied a lot so I felt like I understood the actual, the physiology and mm-hmm. the neurochemistry of depression,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how life fa- life factors can play into that, but also how there can be an underlying disturbance, if you will, or mm-hmm. an imbalance of those neurotransmitter chemicals. Speaking serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. I had a basic understanding of that, and it came in very useful for me. And so I felt well equipped personally uh, to prescribe antidepressants when appropriate mm-hmm. and to know when it was something that needed simply someone with the skill set to counsel them and mm-hmm. very fortunate to have a phd psychologist on the staff if you will part time at the university mm-hmm. um, who who taught at the university, but also was a provider in the clinic that I worked at. So we had a very strong connection that I could use this, the health counseling center along, which was attached to the medical center. And so we worked collaboratively beautifully together. And over the years, as that clinic grew, we had a couple of different providers. And at one time we had two counselors and this is a college community of around with an enrollment of around 2000 mm-hmm. students. So, uh, yeah. it. I think part of the knack of being a good family doctor and treating behavioral health conditions is knowing when to refer. And I felt like I just personally, I, I I was always aware of my limitations. Mm-hmm. And when, when it was beyond something, someone just needed some encouragement, some understanding, a listening ear, and when they really had some deeper issues that needed to be worked through that my skill set was not adequate for.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: uh, in, in my private practice, I, I also developed a network, if you will, of different types of counselors, mm-hmm. LPCs, licensed alcohol and drug counselors, people with PhDs in religious studies that were also counselors sometimes.
2: Mm -hmm. It was helpful. Mm -hmm.
1: And then, of course, the psychiatrists and psychologists. I worked to develop that network, if you will, that array of different, that scope. And I think I, I used that also outside of the student health center some. But, man, what a what a real gift it was to have someone on campus with me to help. And it was a great relationship and it worked, it worked really well. So
0: then you, you went from private practice to being the state Medicaid medical director. Goodness. I want to say you went from the, the frying pan to the fire but i'm not sure that's a good metaphor so how did that happen
2: yeah
1: so um, i I think to answer that you kind of have to understand why a person would do that and Mm -hmm. you have to be interested in that type of work and that type of career shift and for me, twenty years of practicing medicine in what I believe to be the right way, where you you were the medical home, you took care of your patients. You may have heard me say this before, Danny, in some of our meetings, that I think the healthcare system really right now is not designed to really pay physicians to take care of people. I think it's designed to pay physicians to see patients. There's mm-hmm. a difference between taking care of a patient and seeing a patient. And I felt like I really took good care of my patients, but it took a toll on me. Yes. And after 20 years of that, 20 years of that, I was pretty worn out. And just the the toil of that. And so I became interested in administrative medicine and I had some friends who had interest in administrative medicine and did some on a part-time basis. And so an opening came up at the state Medicaid agency. And I happened to know the chief medical officer who was also the state Medicaid director. And I inquired of the position and she said, Mike, I think you'd be a great fit for this. You need to apply. And so I applied and with my background in primary care and, I interviewed and was selected, and so I became a medical director. And I stayed in the medical director role for those first 10 years or so. You do lots of things. You help build uh, care coordination-type programs and disease management programs, but you also look at a lot of medical records for quality concerns and for appropriate Mm -hmm. billing. And just there's an array of things that a doctor – who takes on administrative role for insurance companies mm-hmm. do you write policies, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed that a lot. And it, it was just a, a career change that kind of just happened for me. And then after 10 years, I became the chief medical officer for the state Medicaid program. And with okay. that came much more responsibility and leading a team of approximately 80 people in the agency to Take care of the dental program, the medical program, and what we covered, what we didn't cover, and all yeah. sorts of major yeah. decisions. So that's how my that's a way of explaining I imagine how that, that
0: your passion for mental health, although your role was broader than that, I'm thinking that your passion for mental health. Um, gave you the opportunity to apply what you learned in private practice and in college health to this policy-payer world. So what did you find in that role? Well, uh, In a way, wow, what an opportunity. We have a very different kind of power in that role. But as you and I have talked about together, when we talk about our role on the board of PCORI, power is pretty specific. And it's not all it's cracked up to be. And you have to be really mindful. What is the power? what are the levers that I can pull? And so how did you how did you use that role to affect systems as opposed to working with individuals? Yeah
1: wow, another great question and very insightful question. first of all, I developed a good working relationship with the Oklahoma State Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, which was under a different leadership, Mm -hmm. but they were a sister agency. And so we worked collaboratively on several projects. So first of all, if you don't have that relationship between the Medicaid program and the mental health and substance abuse program, then you really have to have that. Because just to say, we're going to cover this, we're going to cover that, you know, is, is not the total of it. We had a lot of mutual respect for one another, the leadership at Department of Mental Health and Medicaid. And looking at medical records, as I did in my first 10 years, which I just spent a lot of my day looking at medical records, I just was very disturbed by the lack of integration, behavioral health, and the care that people with mental health received. I would see people on anywhere from an antidepressant to inappropriate use of benzodiazepines to inappropriate use of antipsychotics especially the atypical antipsychotics that were very popular and and yet no therapy, yet no behavioral health screening protocols. And it was disturbing to be brutally honest. So we worked to establish some incentives, if you will, to incorporate behavioral health screening, being a state ran program, we were not a managed care state Medicaid. We got to design our own delivery system, and we paid our primary care providers not just a fee for service, but we also paid them some incentives to do certain things. It was a primary care-based program, and one of the things that we incentivized them for was to implement the expert. Tool, which is screening, brief intervention, and referral for therapy. It's what S-B-I-R T stands for. And it's it is actually a billable service that a provider can bill a payer for, in addition to seeing them. Just like if you went to the doctor and the doctor took off a skin lesion.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, you may bill for the encounter and bill for the procedure. Well, expert was something you could, the SBIRT code was something you could build in addition to the evaluation management or the office visit code. So we incentivized providers. We even helped design a tool and said, please screen your patients. Uh, and when you do, you can bill us for this. And so we started that program. It was an incentive-based program, tr- hoping that it would, kickstart this integration of behavioral health into physical health within our primary care network Mm -hmm. and so that was a good and we collaborated with the department of mental health on that by the way and they were really a driving force to help us and of course as a medical director i got to speak heavily into what we covered and what we didn't cover for medicaid and there were lots of cpt codes which is A book that all billable services to an insurer, that's the code book that you use. And you put a certain code down based on what service you deliver. And so SBIRT had its own unique CPT code. And it had two different types of SBIRT codes, actually. One for more advanced services, one for more screening service. And uh, so we implemented that. And the Department of Mental Health was very instrumental in encouraging us to start covering that. We listened and participated in the conversation decided, yes, it's something we want to cover as a state Medicaid agency. As a matter of fact, we want to go the next step and incentivize providers. So we attempted that.
0: Mm -hmm. So that was something you could do because you were in this position of influence and you could coordinate that. Yeah. Okay.
1: To answer your question, that was a, a role. I felt like an important role I could play in yes. helping to address this integration of behavioral mm-hmm. health.
0: Yeah. And so how'd it go? Did you feel like there was more integration?
1: Oh, how did it go? Overall, Danny, I would say... It was a success, but a minor success, I would call it, and somewhat disappointing. Okay. At its worst, it was something providers saw to make an extra dollar, and they would do the minimum it took to be able to bill and Mm -hmm. get paid extra money. Mm. They would have their office staff do the screen the screening instrument, the provider would pay very little attention to it. They did just enough to justify getting paid, but they really did not truly integrate. It. That's mm-hmm. at its worst. Unfortunately, there are providers that are interested in seeing patients mm-hmm. and not taking care of patients. And I think that type of provider somewhat took advantage of. Yeah. The Sorry. If, at its best, I think providers went, this is what we've always been looking for. Wow, this is a great tool. I wish I'd have had this earlier. And they implemented it. They built their network of referrals. They had people they could, because once they did the screen, they had the brief intervention of, hey, look, I'm here to help you. You know, what can I do to help you? Something like, just as simple as that. And the patient certainly, at that point, has a choice to say, this provider really wants to help me, or I'm just not ready yet. But if the patient says, "Wow, well, someone cares, they're going to help me, then it's on the provider and that team within that practice to get you to that next mm-hmm. step of care. Mm-hmm. And that's what SBIRT is about. It's about referring to therapy. It's not necessarily about doing the care right then. Mm-hmm. And so providers, I think, at its best, were thankful. They learned and they accepted it. And then, again, there was a a spectrum of acceptance in -hmm. between. People tried it and said, this is too much work. It's put too much stress on my staff. I'm sorry I'm out on this. It's not worth the incentive. Mm
2: -hmm. And then
1: there were providers who simply knew up front, this is going to stress my practice out. It's disrupting my workflow. I'm not interested. And they never adopted
2: it. Mm-hmm.
1: So we had people all along that spectrum. And overall, did it have the uptake we wanted? No. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it was an attempt. And I do think some good came from it. Mm-hmm. I think we definitely created a lot of awareness. But again, when i go back to that underlying principle of the reimbursement system in healthcare does not incentivize the providers to really take care of the patient it incentivizes providers to see patients and perform services not to really care for the patient so i think it was almost set up for failure mm but occasionally you find the provider who has the heart to do the right thing and i think it was very helpful for that type of
0: provider now a word about our sponsor a bridge record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge push the big pink button and record Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. I need help. I've expanded my podcast this year to include video. And costs have surged to 15 grand annually while each episode takes 30 to 40 hours to produce. With growing content and shrinking bandwidth, I need support to keep creating without impacting our retirement funds. As I look towards the next five to 10 years, I'm building a production team of emerging adults to carry this project forward this succession planning requires resources but here's the deal you can help visit health-hats.com slash support for ways to contribute best option patreon offers a monthly subscription with bonus content zoom meetings with me and fellow contributors personal buried sacks, MP3s, woo-hoo, coaching sessions, and more. Occ- occasional donations are welcome, and you can still subscribe for free to enjoy bonus episodes. You can also recommend us through email, social media, or postcards, postage on us. Visit health-hats.com support. Your support is deeply appreciated. Thank you. So if you you look back on your your different roles, and again I want to think specifically about young adults with a mental illness. What what one thing would you if you were a queen for a day and you could wave your magic wand and you could you could <coughs> have done something in these roles that would have helped young adults and their families to find, you know, better or best health that's more manageable and more sustainable. What would you like to see that you think would have have an impact?
1: Yeah, my answer may surprise you, but it may not. I think it would be family education. Okay. To educate parents on how to recognize and be an advocate for their child. It goes from understanding mental illness as a medical condition, not a mental illness Hmm. when i grew up mental illness was something you dreaded hearing anyone say about anyone because it automatically meant quote they're crazy right and so to dispel any of that old stigma and to get parents into the new age of realizing that brain chemistry is really no different than pancreas chemistry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A person who has an imbalance of the hormones of the pancreas can develop diabetes, hypoglycemia mm-hmm. and people who have imbalance of brain chemistry have can have a behavioral health diagnosis, mm-hmm. a mental health diagnosis. And so to educate the family on the appropriateness of reaching out and to destigmatize, which we've had lots and lots of conversations and media campaigns and things about that. And I think we're getting. It. But then, secondly, to recognize in your child, you know, what is typical post adolescent, teen, and young adult typical behaviors and What do you do if you suspect it? How do you become an advocate? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think a lot of parents just think, look, I did my best. When they leave the home and go to college or they move out and get an apartment, they're on their own. And we really don't prep our our children when they are in the formative years, pre-adolescent, adolescent, adolescent, teenage years, to, to understand behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And and I'll share a personal story. I have an adult daughter who's PhD trained. She's incredibly gifted and very bright. And in high school had a significant struggle with, and I won't say it was no different than her Mm peer. But it was, she was experiencing stress and some situational depression and so we got to talking about that. And I was able, and you know, given her intellect and just her eagerness to learn, i sit down and, and drew her a diagram of kind of how neurotransmitters in the brain work
2: mm-hmm. and
1: how stress can disrupt them and how this, and it made sense to her. Mm-hmm. And she went, ah, I get it. And literally, so we started working on, it, you know, mm-hmm. with just understanding was the key. And for her to know that Dad gets it, and he's here for me,
0: and he loves Uh, me, and we're going to tackle this together.
1: You're right. And I think my magic wand would be to wave over parents and say, "Please be an advocate and help your child." Yeah. And it starts here. But if you didn't get it done back here in those formative years, at least be willing. To reach out and help them, because those years are tough years. When you leave the home and you're suddenly thrust into this world, you start making decisions, and if you have underlying behavioral health issues, they are going to be magnified. So, I think the magic one would be prepare your child, and don't quit advocating for them just because they leave the house. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. point in time we all understand what yes. adult become adults, but there is a period where they still need us. Yeah, And young adulthood is one of those.
0: What should we have talked about that we haven't when it comes to young adult and mental illness?
2: Yeah.
1: Again, when young adults experience traumas and stresses, They look for ways to deal with those. Unfortunately, substance abuse is a frequent coping skill to look for alcohol, to look for drugs, uh, and other inappropriate behaviors can treat that. So I think understanding the role that mental health and just simple non-psychosis issues can lead to that. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing too, is just an awareness of the social media and the stressors that young adults face nowadays. And I don't think, again, we need to explain that, but the suicide rate and the drug overdoses and things that are largely impacted by social media and negativity and feeling of inadequacy. And it just it breaks my heart every time you hear of one of those but it is a reality that we live in mm-hmm. uh, and on the societal pressures including social media keeping up with the Kardashians and fortunately we're getting away from some of this body image you know and shaming that was went on in acceptance of the bodies in which we live and exist and, and accepting those, and I think for providers to be aware of and accept some responsibility for helping young adults, people, late teens, navigating that transition into young adult, to, to be aware of what it takes in this generation, because in our generation, it, it just wasn't the same. Just face it, and it won't be the same for them, the generation that's now transitioning. And so, I think providers need to be intensely aware of the environment that their patients live in and what the environment they do life in, and be ready, stand ready to assist in whatever way they can. So I think if there's something we miss, that would probably be at Danny just to cover that awareness of it is not it's not easy to be a young adult, especially a single young adult, yeah. in today's environment. It, it just isn't, and you know, trying to equip our young adults as they leave the home, I think, is a huge, huge job that parents and the family community need to. Do a better job of, I guess. To be real honest, if I were saying that's that magic wand, you know, if I could Mm -hmm. just enhance the family's capabilities and abilities to prepare their young adults, and we really haven't spent a lot of time on severe mental illness, but that's it's the same with severe mental illness. It's a different set of treatment strategies. And we certainly, and those can stress the family, and families are much more in tune to behavioral health issues when they have a child with that. I think it's the families that tend to ignore and don't want to respect Mm. the stressors and the impact and the behavioral health impact it can have on seemingly unaffected young adults. we're all affected. It's just what are our coping skills and to what degree and how are we prepared?
0: Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking this time with me. I have to process. You said a lot. So thank you very much for taking the time. I, 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 um, I'm glad you well, were where I, you were. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you, that. You, yeah,
0: I think you have an impact. That's great. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you. We would all like to hope that we left this world a little better than it was when we came into it, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, that's great. I agree. All right, man. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right.
1: Thanks, Danny. See you. Okay.
0: Bye bye. A mother contacted me this week with a harrowing tale of two weeks in a community emergency department with her emerging adult son in crisis, waiting for an adolescent psych inpatient bed. The two weeks felt like solitary confinement, never outside no windows, and much of the time in hallways without TV, iPad, or any stimulation. To add insult to injury, the hospital fed him grilled cheese sandwiches twice daily when he was lactose intolerant and refused to allow her to bring in home-cooked food. I remind us that policy, culture, bureaucracy, and staffing have real-life implications. It's too raw for this mother to tell her story publicly, but you will hear it in the next year. As you know from this series and this episode, good people struggle with an insane system. It's not like this doesn't have solutions, but our national priorities and incentives prevent much change. Okay, that's the rant. I appreciate that Dr. Herndon took the time and provided some insight into his attempts to affect policy change. He used his levers of power to affect change, create a payer code for screening that had a seriously underwhelming response. Sadly, this episode depressed me. Glad I'm not an emerging adult needing treatment. I have four more episodes in this series for you, for a total of 15 episodes. Two researchers, one health economist, and a wrap-up summary from me. I will try to end with something uplifting. Thank you. I host... Write, record, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast, with production assistance from Kayla Nelson, from website and social media consultation, and managing dissemination, plus Leon Van Leeuwen for transcript editing. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. Please subscribe and contribute on Patreon. Help me keep the lights on and out of my retirement funds. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at dvanleu, d-v-a-n-l-e-e-u. Link in the show notes. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.